0: Hey everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge. It is June 21st, 2012, and we are talking about what you want to talk about today. This is a show based on some suggestions I got on the Facebook page that uh, I thought were very good. So, shout out to Mark for uh, giving some of these great ideas. Um, But today, we're talking about some various things in the studio as far as making the studio yours, making it your business, making it yours personally. Um, and a lot of different great ideas that all can kind of link together. So we'll talk about some of these questions that Mark mentioned. Um, again, if you guys have uh, more questions, I'm going to try to get to them. So for Paul and other people that uh, posted, just hang tight. Your questions will get answered soon. Um, but again, if you have any questions about anything you want me to talk about, whatever on this show, go over to the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Uh, Or email me, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Before we get into the show, I also want to give myself a plug because I am writing a book about mixing and recording. Well, I take that back. Actually, it was a book about both, but then it switched into two separate books, one about mixing and one about recording. Now, these are books not really about the basics of these things, but about sort of taking these things in depth and understanding things like compression and EQ and panning and reverb and delay and uh, as far as mixing and then on the recording side understanding things like how to set up for a session and what things to listen for and how to get sounds and how to work with the artist and all these things like that so uh, this book I'm not exactly sure when it will come out I'm not published by any particular publisher or anything Um, I'm probably just going to produce it myself and whatnot and make it available for sale Online, And because of that, the price, I have no idea exactly what it'll be right now. However, I'm going to try to give it as a digital download, like PDF, for a little bit cheaper, or also a a bound version that you can buy, and um, of course you can have it in your hands, which I always like because I like to write in the books and stuff like that. But anyway, that should be coming out in the next few months, and I'll keep you posted as far as its release, I've got about one more review to do of the whole book, and I'm going to have someone else look at it, and we're going to both edit it and work on it for a little while. So, I'll keep you posted. So, what we're talking about today is running a studio as a viable business, backup schemes, and we're also talking about soft skills, what it takes to keep a session on track, And according to Mark, how to successfully, or no, excuse me, respectfully navigate between band members, producers, and other creative forces. How to go about budgeting your time in the studio relative to the size of the project and budget. Lots of great stuff, okay? So thanks, Mark, for for giving these great suggestions. I think a lot of people could stand to learn about this stuff if they're struggling or they're confused or whatever. And it's always a good idea, even if you already know how to do these things, to hear someone else's perspective. The way I do it may not be the way you do it. And maybe you say, I don't like the way you do it. I'm glad that I do it the way I do it. That's okay. Or you might say, you know what? I've been looking for a way to do that differently. And I think, you know, what what Kendall said was a good idea. So just um, take take what you want out of this. So I'm going to go and describe some of these from my perspective. So... Running a studio is a viable business. One of the biggest questions that interns have for me. I have three interns right now, and my internships usually last about six months to a year, depending on how long they're available to work and, um, honestly, how well it goes. Well, one of the questions I get from them, usually they're in college, young in college or just out of high school or something and their number one question is what do i do now like where do i go do i go to school for this do i i'm i'm just kind of cornered i don't know where to go or what to do well in my experience in my personal experience i do not suggest going to school for recording i do think that going to school for recording can get you some incredible connections however here's the thing about connections Let's say you go to school for four years in Arizona. There's a good recording school in Arizona. And let's say you're from Pennsylvania. But the thing to remember is wherever you move, you might want to stay there. Because the connections you make will not follow you back to Pennsylvania. So if you go to school somewhere, then it might only be a viable thing to go to school if that's where you already live. So if you already live in LA, if you already live in Philadelphia, if you already live in wherever, then you might consider a little more going to school in that area. Um, And even I know people that have gone to you know Full Sail and some other schools that boast to be really good recording schools, and they come back and try to get an internship, and I don't give them one because they don't know what they're talking about. And it's really upsetting to me. When I see someone that went to Full sale for, you know, four years and then someone that's a, you know, a sophomore in community college from around here and they might potentially know more because they just do it more in the real world. Like they're recording their own music and whatnot. So that's the first step is school. You know, should I go to school? Honestly, I think if you're going to go to school for for anything – um, you should either go, A, for your backup plan, which is what we're going to talk about next, or, B, I would go to school for business. You can go for MIS, you can go for which is information systems. You can go for uh, management. You can go for entrepreneurship. You can go for accounting. Lots of different degrees out there that can really help you as a business owner because a studio, if you are going to work for yourself, even if you're just doing freelance, most people don't understand money as well as they should. Most people don't understand business as well as they should. If there are any books that I could suggest to you uh, on some of these things that, I, that I've that i learned about running a business, one of them would be the Sales Bible. Um, it, I know that it applies to sales, but if you really just think about it, you can apply it to the recording studio. Another great one is Duct Tape Marketing. It's a great book about the recording studio. Um, It's not about the recording studio, but it's about marketing, and you can apply it to the recording studio great. Um, It talks a lot about marketing for yourself, and that's basically what you're doing when it comes to a studio. And um, those two books are great. Another one is called The Little Black Book of Connections. And uh, those are probably my favorite three books on the topic of you know, just understanding sales and understanding sales attitude, understanding marketing. They're very simple books. They're great reads. They're not expensive. Check them out. That's The Sales Bible, The Little Black Book of Connections, and which is about networking, and then um, duct tape marketing. Check out those three books. So anyway, is a studio a viable business? Yes and no. Is it viable if your definition of viable means making a lot of money? Maybe not. Is it viable if you live in some random little tiny town in Montana? Maybe not. Is it viable if you live in a mid sized town uh, in Texas? Maybe so. A lot of it depends on your location, a lot of it depends on the music scene around you, the economy. You know, the this job is very dependent on the economy. Why? Because when the economy gets worse, supposedly, or you know, these economists say that the economy gets worse, people have less money for for their own you know desires. One of one of those desires is recording. So as times get tough, musicians who are already generally uh, you know money troubled, they won't have the spare money to record. They usually will stick to their demos or whatever and once the economy or once their job or once their blah blah blah, once their girlfriend this or their wife that or their kids or their you know, whatever. Once that all gets back then they can get back in the swing of things. But just keep in mind that the recording industry generally is parallel to the economy. Unlike something like alcohol that is counter economical, meaning as the economy gets worse, alcohol stocks and cigarette stocks actually go up um, because they sell more. But uh, as the economy gets worse, so does our job in it. Any freelance job like um, handyman work or being a plumber or being an architect, freelance, a lot of these things fluctuate a lot. Being a recording engineer can fluctuate a lot. Does that mean that it's no longer viable? No. Is it a viable business for me? Yes. I've been doing it for about seven years now as my main job. I've made a lot of connections, and that's, to me, what has kept me going. The studio is almost primarily based on referrals. This is a quote from one of those books I told you to read. When in doubt, all things being, all other things being fair, price being fair, whatever, people will do business with their friends. Here's the second part of the quote. All things not being fair. People still want to do business with their friends. So even if their friend charges $50 more per hour, they'll probably take them. Why? Because they trust them. Um, Producing and mixing and recording is almost like paying somebody to paint a picture for you. So you're saying, um, the musician is saying, okay, here's what I have in my head. Now you take the brush and you paint it and they're paying you to do this and it's so it's it's i mean it's a lot of trust that goes into your hands as far as this job goes and if you don't have the trust between the client and you you're just you just can't do it you have to have a good attitude about what you do and if you're just doing it as a form of making money if you're just doing it as a form of oh well i need more clients and why does this other studio have more clients than i do and they don't sound as good as well maybe their attitude is better than yours you know that's just the truth, and that's I, I hate to say, it, but it just is. Um, the way that you treat your clients, the way that you present yourself, the way that your studio is presented—if it's clean, if it looks good, if it's an enjoyable environment—all these things really matter to having a studio as a legitimate job. And so, take pride in what you do, and and research it, and learn, and read about it. Like I said, those three books um, have helped me in so many aspects of the job. The next thing we're going to talk about is backup schemes, because this goes right along with this whole deal. Now, so what if what if recording can't be your main job? What if it fails, you know? What if you invest all this money and then it fails? Well, first of all, let me say I would not suggest investing a lot of money. We've talked about this on the uh, Spending Money show. One of the things we talked about in there is how it's not a good idea to buy tons and tons of gear, especially if you don't really you know, need it at your level or whatever, especially, especially if there is a professional studio in your area that can let you work there. Freelance. And because they're going to be the ones investing in the gear and you, that's where you should work. It really will save you time and money. In the end, I know it doesn't seem like it up front, but in the end it will save you so much time and money to just record there and your projects will sound better immediately rather than you trying to slowly collect a gear collection over 10 or 20 years that they already have and in 10 and 20 years they will still be outperforming you because they're in a facility and they have more gear and you're probably in a smaller space or your house And so, you know, just keep that in mind. Try as hard as you can if you are going to buy gear. If you do say, okay, Kindle, I don't care. I'm going to spend $15,000 on my setup. If you're going to do that, if you're going to buy, that's fine. That's totally fine. I've spent way more than that on my stuff. That's not the point. The point is don't buy things that you'll have to replace. Don't buy something that costs $1,000 that you're just going to want to get rid of in two years and sell it for 200 when the technology's you know, changed so much. Technology moves so fast today, it is a waste of money to do that. So save up, do your research, email me, or go on forums, ask around, see what is good and what will last you for a long, long time. We're talking 10 to 50 years per piece. We want something that will last you a long time so that you'll get your money's worth out of it. If you want to gauge depreciation from an accounting standpoint, just say how many years do I think I'll use it, and you know you take that divided by the price. So if you let's say it's a thousand dollars, and you think that it'll only last you two years, thousand divided by two is five hundred dollars, which means it'll depreciate five hundred dollars every year for two years. Now, does that mean that your piece is worth zero dollars in two years? No. Um, in accounting, we have what's called a scrap value or a salvage value which basically means like at a certain point it won't really depreciate anymore like that's what you could sell it to for scrap almost like the scrap value of a car um, you know but that's usually not very high if just do the figures in your head though if you buy a piece that's $10,000 and it'll last you for 40 years that's like $250 a year um, so you're you're keeping more of the value in what you buy the better quality things you buy Get high quality stuff. Do your research. Don't don't skimp on that. Don't don't start buying cheap this and cheap that just to get started. Now I do suggest having a mixing setup, and you know, but but seriously, invest in some good stuff. Invest in some good monitors. Invest in a good interface. Um, that stuff will really last you a long time. Keep in mind that I'm not exactly talking about the guy that's doing it as a hobby. I'm talking about for those of you that are listening, trying to make it a job. All of these tips are trying to make it a job. If you're just doing it for a hobby, get whatever you want. So anyway, backup schemes. I would Like I said, you can go to school for a backup job. However, if you're trying to make it a legitimate job, my first inclination is to say then make it a legitimate job drop everything you're doing and do it. If that doesn't work out, then try it once more, give it a give it a shot, try something different. Read some books, um, p- partner up with someone, really try to do it again. And if that doesn't work, you know, then maybe consider getting a day job just to pass the pass the time while you're trying to figure it out. And if that doesn't work, then maybe you should just get a career somewhere else. I mean, It sounds really upsetting for me to say, but I'd say about 90% of the people that I know, uh, I do substitute teaching at this recording school and uh, do guest lecturing um, in another class. I'd say about 90% of those students, I never see again, ever. I talked to some of my interns come from those classes. Some of them, I asked them, so whatever happened to, you know, so-and-so? And they're like, oh, they're just, you know, working it arby's or something you know and they're not doing any recording they're not you know so there are people that just aren't as driven now if you are driven you probably know it most people that have that sort of passion know it in their bones and they don't deny it and they know hey i don't care what this guy says i want to make it a legitimate job well then go do it educate yourself educate yourself educate yourself and try on another note if the studio doesn't work out, there's still plenty of good jobs in audio and you can do recording on the side. Like, you can run sound somewhere, you can work at a guitar center, or like, if you live happen to live in Indiana or want to move there, you can work at Sweetwater. Or you could work at some guitar store or music store, or you can teach guitar lessons, or you can do anything. You can do things with music and make recording a side business. I don't. There's no shame in that or anything. Now, if you're trying to make it your main business, then, like I said... My advice is to just go for it with all you got. Now, I will end this whole section with the backup schemes by giving you a quote from John Mayer. On uh, He was giving a seminar at Berkeley, at Berkeley graduation, and he was telling the students, anybody that tells you to you know, have a backup plan doesn't believe in you because they don't believe that what you're trying to do is legitimate, and they want you to understand that. So, don't have a backup plan if you re- if you if you have a backup plan you'll probably end up taking it. And that's a really interesting insight and um, I, I do commend him for saying that because it is it's bold but it's true. I mean if you really just if you give yourself an opportunity to fail, you might fail. If you push hard and do everything you can and try really hard, then you might not. So be brave on those things. Okay, so the next thing we're going to talk about is soft skills. Now, what are soft skills? In the business world, or in whatever, soft skills generally refer to like qualities and personality traits of the person that, that aren't physically like you know, oh, I, I'm good with my hands, or oh, I have a good ear, or I have a good eye, or I have a good you know, they're, they're things like time management and um, you know, attitude and communication. The skills that I think that are really necessary in the recording world. I would say the number one thing as far as owning a business is work ethic. If you don't have a lot of work ethic, um, I do think that it does take a certain type of person to own a business, regardless if it's a restaurant or a recording studio. It takes a very driven, very focused person to run a business because it's hard, it's difficult, it takes time, and often you're working constantly. Like, Even if you're off for the day, you're still on your phone scheduling the next day or you're still on your phone scheduling for the weekend or trying to text clients and say, you know, hey, when did you want to come in next? Or you're trying to make posts on social media websites like Facebook and Twitter and Blogger and all these things to try to get interest in the studio. So that's number one thing. You have to have strong work ethic. In addition to that, you have to have... The ability to manage your time really well, because those two go hand in hand. Because you can get your work ethic out of hand with your time management. Um, so people out there with wives will understand that recording is not necessarily a wife-friendly job. It, like I said, it can be a very, it can be a very difficult job to schedule. It can be very up and down, and f- as far as time, when am I free? When am I not? Making sure that you don't overwork yourself because that can really screw you in the end in so many ways. It can hurt your relationships. It can hurt your friendships. It can hurt your physical health. Um, Overworking is, is tough. And take a freaking vacation. I went three or four years doing the recording studio without taking one vacation, and I regret it big time. As far as other parts of soft skills, as far as recording studio goes, being able to communicate with people, being able to be a team player and being able to um, have these sort of connections with people is so vital. Like I talked about with trust and everything, if you're not a people person, then you may want to definitely consider a different career because, like I said, you're dealing with artists. You're dealing with creative folks that have a lot of feelings and a lot of um, attachments to their music, and it's very difficult to understand the attachments with these songs. You can't have that sort of uh, uneasiness, that seasick feeling between the artist and the producer or the engineer, whatever you want to call yourself. You can't have that. It has to be so open. And you know, and generally, I, I joke with clients about how I'm, you know, um, on the on the record when they ever when the record comes out and they ask me how I want to be credited. I usually say therapist. Because that's honestly a lot of times what you become. You end up talking to them about their lives and about their friends and about their job and all this stuff. Why? To establish trust. To establish that relationship. That's so important. I would say to keep a session on track, you really have to plan ahead. So you have to know what it is that you need to accomplish. That also helps the client have faith in you. So if you and the client talk about what you need to accomplish, so just ask them, what do we need to do today? What do we need to accomplish today? And just make a list and then try to knock it out. It's much more uh, pleasing when everyone at the end of the day is like, man, we got a lot done today. Um, then if the people are like, okay, I guess we'll just, we'll finish that up next time. That's not necessarily a good way to end a session is saying we'll finish that next time. Now it does happen um, it does happen Session can get away from you Just try if you can to make a checklist Just write it out I know that sometimes what I do is I like to make a grid So basically let's say you're doing a full album And um, you have 10 songs Well what you do is on the left side of the grid You take a big piece of poster board Like a you know 99 cent piece of poster board from uh, Walmart On the left side of the grid You write the names of the songs So that'd be uh, 10, 10 spaces 10 songs On the right side of the grid Um, on the top axis, you write the instruments. So drums, guitars, vocals, keys, whatever, percussion, and then I usually have overdubs at the end, and then I usually have rough mix, and then I have final mix. What that means is, I don't have to make it necessarily a big poster board, sometimes I just put it in a notebook, but I would make this little grid, and as I finish things, mark them off. And so eventually, the It starts to fill up. So if you finish drums for this song, then guitars for this song, you can fill it up horizontally. You can fill it up vertically. Um, You guys get the picture of what I'm talking about here. Sometimes it's really nice to have it on a physical piece of poster board, because then you can hang it up in the studio, and the band can sort of see it as a visual representation of how um, much of the piece of the pie they've actually finished. So if they have, you know, a 10 by 10, let's say they have 10 instruments. If they've only finished the drums, they can see that all the drums are blocked out. But then they also see the fact that the poster board's all white and they've only finished a 10th of the album. So they think, oh my gosh, yeah, we got so much done today. But then they can also have that drive to see, yeah, but we still have a ton to do. So think about that. It's a visual representation of, of how their progress goes. And that's good because they need to keep your clients informed of the progress um, and try to get things done. Remember, it's just like statistically proven. The more things that you can get done, even if you make a little less money doing it, the more you can move through, the better. Because um, it's it's a, think of it like a taxi driver. Um, taxi drivers drive like crazy. Why? Because they're trying to get as many passengers as they can throughout the day. And you wouldn't think, you know, why wouldn't they just like to make a couple of longer drives than, you know, 15 short ones? Well, 15 short drives will now give people the idea that, oh, well, this taxi company's always there when I need them, and they always get me there on time. Same thing works for, like, Walmart. They don't necessarily have... The highest price on everything. They couldn't be. Ma- they could be making more money if they raised their prices. People would still go to Walmart because they have everything. But I have a friend that works as a manager at Walmart, and she said the average checkout at Walmart is something like hundred and fifty dollars. The average, and um, she also said that they they check out over a thousand people per store per day, easily up in the ten thousands on busy days. Ten thousand customers. Per store, so that's a lot of people. So the idea is, um, you know, work fast, be aggressive, and try to get things done because the more you get used to this habit the more you will have more clients, and the more you'll get more referrals. Because every client you get, that's more referrals, potentially, that you could get from them. Because every client you get has connections, and their connections become your connections, if you establish the trust with them enough to allow them to feel the comfort in saying, hey man, we just did our recording with this guy, and he was awesome. You want that statement to happen. So, how to respectfully navigate between band members, producers, and creative forces. Again, this is a big part about attitude and about how you present yourself. You've got to let things roll off your back. That's a big thing. you got to be really nonchalant about some stuff, and you have to be really open. Now, I will say, a big part of it is just being that sort of type of person, but you can work on it. So, you know, just if someone says something, I, I had this funny story of I was recording a band, and... They wanted this really specific snare tone, and they but they couldn't describe it to me. And so I was like, okay, well let me just try out a couple of snare drums and see if you like them. And he was like, oh okay. So we tried out three or four, and I only had one snare drum left. And so I was like, I bet this is it. I think this is the tone that they want. So I hooked up the snare drum, and uh, I was sitting playing the drum kit for him and just letting him listen to it. And he was smiling a little bit, and you know I'm like I'm like okay okay I think I I think he's got it, and I think he likes this snare drum, you know well, I stopped playing. I'm like, yeah, what do you think? And he just looks at me and he has this big smile and he just says, wow, I don't like that at all. And, uh, (laughs) I just remember laughing about that later. And we all laughed about it because he, he really just didn't like it. He was sitting there. He liked it the least out of all of them. And that's why he was smiling because he knew that it was the last snare that I had. And, uh, so anyway, what we ended up doing is, uh, renting a drum, but, uh, Anyway, so that's a sort of situation where you, you gotta have thick skin. You can't let that get offensive. You know, it's like, hey, if they want it their way, then, you know, try whatever you can. Work as hard as you can to make it that way. And uh, every now and then, like, if you're the producer, then, and, and depending on the artist, they might be like, hey, what do you think? That's a good thing. If, because that means they trust you again. But if they have very, very specific ideas, then you need to make sure that their ideas are not so specific that they're actually not trusting you again, evaluate that based on your relationship with them and how you treat them. You can't be a suck up because then they'll, then they'll walk all over you. But you can't be too aggressive or they'll never want to come back to record. It's a very fine line. Dealing with other creative forces for me has never really been a problem because I'm a people person. I'm here doing a podcast uh, talking to you know, uh, a crowd of whoever, how many, I don't even know how many people are listening to this. But, um, you know, I don't get offended if you guys send me a message that says, you know, hey, uh, you didn't talk about this on this show. You know, can you talk about that next time? I don't get offended about that. I'm like, oh, you're right. I didn't talk about that. Why argue that, that there's not, they're right, I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, I didn't talk about it. Some people's natural inclination is to be like, "Hey, I'll do the show however I you know want to and you you know I'll do it however I want and you don't have any say in it." But that's not the sort of attitude that will get you anywhere. So, again, you got to have a good attitude. And so as as creative people start coming into play, as they start showing up in your situation, You know, Just be aware that you have – first of all, you have to define the head. So you might be the head. You might be the producer. You might be calling all the shots, in which case um, you can push a little bit harder as far as being aggressive and getting your way if you're the producer. Now, if you're not the producer, then you almost, almost need to back out of the way completely and just say, what do you need? What do you need me to do? If you're just the engineer, do not overstep your bounds because you never know what sort of job you can get in trouble for doing. You never know that that producer might be like, man, that guy kept trying to tell me how to run my job and I'm never going to have him back as an engineer. That has happened to people. That happens to people all the time that overstep their bounds. And, uh, you know, so, so just know where your place is and know where their place is. And really define the roles early. If the roles are undefined, if you're like, well, I guess he's kind of the producer, that's not a good place. You need to be like, he's the producer, I'm the engineer, I'm not producing this project. Now, if you're both producing, that's just something you're going to have to deal with. And sometimes that can be a lot of work and a lot of struggle. In that case, I would just really try to, again, make friends with the artist. Be have this trusting relationship with the artist. Because if they trust you, then, you know, a lot of times they might... Let's say you have two producers and two engineers on one project, which seems like a terrible situation to be in. If the one, the engineer that gets his way is the one that befriends the band. Okay, so the next, the the last thing we're talking about is um, specifically budgeting your time between tracking, mixing, and mastering and you know, I'm also gonna add in there like overdubs and uh, mixing sessions um, in the studio relative to the different size and project budgets. The best advice I can give you here is no matter what the budget, do not work less hard on a project um, just because they're paying you less. Because again, it's all about your reputation with these people. If you're sitting out, you know, in the control room control room and you know, eating your breakfast and twiddling your thumbs and drinking coffee and not getting stuff done, you're not going anywhere. That's not a good attitude. My suggestion is to actually flip that on its side and work really hard and really fast on the low budget projects. Try to get them done as fast as possible. One, because it's probably not as enjoyable of a project for you and you don't want to be dragging it on. Two, because you can use that as sort of a method of giving them a cheaper price. Like you said, okay, listen, we're going to give you a cheaper price, but just know that we're not going to be able to spend as much time as you would if you paid the full price. And third, if they're low budget, that probably means they're also on a short timeline. Because think about it. If they had a long timeline, they could save up more money. And um, so so really try to make yourself a goal. I'm going to be done with this by the end of the month, or I'm going to be done with this at the end of the week. This is a certain point when you have to start gauging, can I afford to not take this project? If it's like they want to do 10 songs, but their budget is low, that is something that you really should not take, I think. I would say it'd be much better to convince them to do fewer songs but for the normal price, be tactful in the way that you make deals. you know, don't don't cut yourself short, but also, you know, don't don't give in to a yes um, so quickly. Don't take your time lightly because your time is the most important asset that you have, really, because you can, I mean, all of your projects will take time. There's not a single project that you can get done that won't take time. Um, that's really where your business matters because something like Walmart, they got 24 hours a day. They've got all the time in the world, whether there are no clients in there or whether it's packed full of people. It's not like that in the studio world. You're the one that makes your clients have a time. So your time is very valuable. I'm really glad that you asked about this question, Mark, um, because budgeting your time is very important. I would say the most important phase is the pre-production and tracking phase. So, you need to make sure and spend all the time prepping for the project that you can afford. So, talk to the band. Listen to things that they like. Listen to things they don't like. Listen to um, records that they like the sound of versus they like the band, but they don't really want to sound like that band. They just like the way the band plays, or vice versa. They like the sound of this record, but they don't really like the the actual band itself. Like... They like the mixing, but they don't like the actual songs. Ask them questions. Get to know them. Talk. Laugh. Go out to eat. Have some coffee. Continue to talk and build a relationship and talk to them about what they want, about what they don't want. And also, ask about things like, do you want to record it live? Do you want to record it individually? Do you want to record a scratch vocal and a scratch guitar? Or do you just want to start with the drums to a click? Or do you want to play with the guitar player and the drummer live to a click, but then redo the guitars? As you can tell, there are lots of different versions. So you need to talk to them. Prep for it. Then go in and start knocking things out in the tracking phase. Um, Again, your best friends in this situation... Are your ears, your monitors, and your client, not your gear? Your gear is important, um, but really what matters is are you getting the sound in the control room that they like? So, whether that's a 57 or whether that's some $2,000, $4,000 microphone, that's not the point. The point is. If your monitors are flat and they're good, so like I said, invest in some good monitors. If your monitors are good and you can trust your ears, you get what sound they like. Now, there is a certain point where you do have to make some calls, but if they like it, then you're probably good and you want to impress them. You want to get a good sound. You want to get a good sound on the drums. You want to get a good sound on everything. So again, talk to them, see what they like and try to make decisions about how to get those sounds up front and then get them. Mixing. How I handle mixing is I generally will give people rough mixes pretty close to after the tracking phase is done. I like to sort of mix a little bit as I go on the rough so that it sounds good primarily for the vocalist. When the vocalist comes in to do recording his vocals, I always do vocals last, always. And that's because I want it to sound pretty close to a rough mix when he comes to sing because I feel like vocalists always sing worse to an unmixed track. So they sing much better when the track has some nice big kick drum and nice strong guitars and you know their vocals uh, have a space to sit. So keep that in mind that you may want to start kind of mixing the track before you record vocals if possible one thing you got to keep in mind with the studios of the old days is that most of the time people were playing live. So when you heard all the instruments together, you could make better engineering decisions about what to do. Nowadays, we track things individually, so we have no context. So we listen to a guitar and we're like, oh, that sounds great. But then if we were to listen to the guitar and the other guitar and the bass and the drums and the piano, you might realize, man, that guitar is really too mid-rangey. Or man, that you know kick drum is really too clicky. Or man, that key- keyboard has way too much low end. And you could have fixed that in the tracking stage. However, in modern recording times, we do a lot of things individually. And so that sort of context does not happen, at least as much. I try to track live as much as possible for that reason always be aware of context. Try. If you're doing an overdub and you're getting a guitar sound, try to get the guitar sound while listening to the track. And see if it sounds right then. Adjust it on the amp or the pedals or the guitar first. Then mess with EQ and mics and all that stuff later. As far as mixing goes, once the vocals are done and once all the recording is done, try to work fast. I suggest actually saving your rough mix but then starting a new session and clearing it Um, And starting from scratch. I always think it sounds better to start from scratch and just use the rough as a reference. Start from scratch, do it right, do it clean, but be aggressive. Uh, Mix quickly because generally I find that mixing quickly turns into a better sort of mix. Um, You're not getting, don't spend too much time with the mix. It will suck. If you spend way too much time with each mix, it will suck. If you're having translation issues, You're mixing it in your uh, room, and then you take it to the car and it sounds terrible. If that is happening, it is not you, most likely. It is probably your gear. So adjust something. Adjust something, adjust something. Get acoustic treatment. Get new monitors. Listen on different speakers, because that is one of the main things. I can tell you from experience, translation issues are probably the main thing that causes mixes to take longer is that you are, You keep having to redo things. You keep having to open the project and adjust something. You send it to them, and they're like, man, on my laptop it sounds really tinny. Or, uh, man, in my car there's not much bass to it. But then on your system it sounds big. Well, that means your system has too much bass in it. Keep that in mind that you can speed up your mixing process, you can speed up your tracking process, you can speed up all these processes if you have good monitors and you have a good tracking room and you have a good control room to trust what you're hearing, to trust that if you record something, it's going to sound good on the laptop or it's going to sound good you know, um, in the car or it's going to sound good on headphones. If you can't trust that, then what's the point of having $2,000 microphones? Um, Because at least if you can trust your monitoring setup, you can hear how much you hate a 57 or hear how much you hate a you know, RE20 on something. Um, But if your monitors are lying to you, you might be like, oh yeah, 57s are the best mic ever. I can record everything with them. But then you realize, oh, no, I can't. I would say budget about a day per mix fully, which means about eight hours. If you can't mix a song in eight hours... Um, and then refine it in about two, uh, then you probably need to practice mixing faster, and then you need to practice uh, being aggressive from the start. And you also should practice um, and, and, and just and just see how your monitoring setup compares in terms of translation. Um, so do a mix that you think is awesome in your spare time, and take it to the car and see how awesome it is there. And then gauge the differences and try to make a correction. So what I, what I do is I, I take about a day per song to mix. Um, so let's say there's five songs. I take five days. Then I will give them to the client on a CD and I will say listen to them um, or they'll come in, either one, and we'll listen to them. Uh, generally, I like to give them a CD of it if possible. Um, sometimes I don't like to do that because sometimes people think, you know oh, they'll steal them or whatever. It'll leak or all this crap. Generally, doesn't happen. But if you're working with super corporate clients, you cannot do that. So anyway, you give them a CD so that they can listen to it on their MacBooks, so they can listen to it in their cars, they can listen to it. Because if it sounds good on the systems they know, that's a good plus. That means that they like it. If it doesn't, that means that you are having translation, translation issues. So make sure you get that fixed. So after they bring me back their notes on the whole mix... It's generally stuff like, uh, as Mixerman would say, part, section, up or down. So, oh, the snare drum in the choruses are too, is too loud. Or the vocals, um, at the end of this phrase, I can't hear. Or the guitar is too loud in the solo. Stuff like that. Simple stuff. Now, if it's more complex things, like uh, the kick drum's too bright and the guitar's a little too mid-rangey and the you know uh, vocals I just can't really understand, they're not very clear and... Things like that, again, check your monitoring setup because those are the sorts of things. Or check your skill set because those are the sorts of things that you really need to get down is tone. Now, volumes are subjective a lot um, because of the systems. But tone needs to be something that you focus on a lot in getting good tone on things. You don't want to have a lot of people sitting there saying, man, everything just sounds really muddy or... The kick drum sounds really clicky or the vocals sound really bright. Um, if you start getting a lot of those things, like on every single mix you do, then really look at, this, look at your setup. Um, remember that your monitoring setup has so much to do with it and your ears also will develop over time. Your ears will get better at hearing the way things need to sound. They will get better at hearing, you know. Oh wow, that vocal really is too bright. I can't believe I I used to mix vocals that bright or whatever. You're listening to old mixes that you've done, and you're just appalled. You're like, oh my god, I was so bad. That happens to everyone. That's okay. Um, but just giving you my perspective here. So then um, they bring me back my notes, and I try to make the fixes with them present, and that means I can usually do about one song depending on how great the fixes are I guess I find usually about an hour per song to fix anything and then what I do is after so that takes about a day generally a day or two of little mix fixes um, five five to ten songs a day depending on how long we can work on each one depending on how long the fixes take. Um, then I render them the next CD and um, and just make sure double check that everything's okay and then it's sent to mastering. Mm-hmm. If I am the mastering guy on the project, and on lower budgets, sometimes this is the case, um, I can master an entire CD in one day. That's about five to six hours. And uh, I think mastering should be quick. Mastering should be something that you you really got to listen closely for. So again, you have to trust your monitors. Um, but mastering should not be long. Don't Don't get in the habit of... You know, delaying projects and being like, oh, I need more time. I'm uh, I'm still tweaking the mixes when in reality you just don't know how to finish them. Uh, Don't lie to clients. Don't tell them that you need more time when really you've just been putting it off. Um, If you make a date to get something done, you get it done by that time. You don't want to have the reputation of being slow. That's a bad reputation to have. At the same time, to sum up all this stuff, you have what's called the business triangle. Uh, some people call it the quality triangle. Some people call it other different things. But basically, the idea is that you have three points on a triangle. You have good, fast, and cheap. And uh, you can only pick two of those things at a time. So you can have something good and you can have it fast, but it won't be cheap. You can have something fast and you can have it cheap, but it won't be good. Um, you can have something good and you can have something and it, and it can be cheap, but you won't get it fast. So um, think about those things and think about how that relates to your job and just keep that in mind is that, you know, there is a balance and you will find it, but you should tell yourself that you need to have specific times for goals goals as far as mixing goes. Because if you just say, you know, oh, well, I don't know how long it takes me to finish a song and I know that it takes, you know, about a day to mix a song. I know that about myself. I can mix a song in about, depending on how easy it is, anywhere from 6 to 12 hours to mix a song. And I'm usually at the studio about 10 hours, um, 8 to 10 hours. And so I can mix a song in one day from scratch. And depending on the situation, maybe if the musicians all played super well and it was recorded really well, then maybe I can get it done in 4 or 5 hours and then give it to them and then make my corrections. Mm -hmm. I will say I spend about... 70 percent of my time on about 10 percent of the sound but it's about 10 percent of the sound that makes the biggest difference um in the overall mix you know tiny tweaks to compression tiny tweaks to automation tiny tweaks to eq tiny tweaks to the vocal little things in the end where all the changes start to slowly boil down and you're only dealing with a couple decibels on things but it really makes a big difference Anyway, I hope this show has been helpful to you on lots of different ways about your job, about the workflow of things, about your attitude, about managing your time, about your skills, all these things. I hope that this has given you guys some good things to think about and um, I know it's a lot. I know I tried to pack a lot into a short amount of time but um, you can always check out the blog. It's recordinglounge.blogspot.com and check out the Facebook, Add Us as a Friend. And you will be able to get us on your newsfeed. And if we make any posts or anything, I update things from the Twitter. And uh, if you have any questions about anything at all, email me at recordingloungepodcast at com. And I will talk to you guys soon.